speak up and, and tell their providers. Um, a lot of times it's just providers sort of like gasping at how, how uncomplicated your pregnancy has been. Welcome to the Happy Homebirth Podcast, your source for positive natural childbirth stories and your community of support, education, and encouragement in all things homebirth and motherhood. Well, hey there, happy home birthers. I am currently enjoying all of the newborn snuggles on maternity leave. So I have some encore episodes for you for the next few weeks. Some of these episodes are from the very beginning of the podcast, and I wanted to give them an opportunity to see new life, uh, to re-listen to these oldies but goodies, and I hope that they bring you something new. Enjoy, and I will see you back here after maternity leave. And we have an amazing guest today, Lily Nichols, who is a registered dietitian. She has written two books, Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. She is a guru when it comes to nutrition for pregnant women and postpartum women, especially. So I am starstruck basically with Lily Nichols. Like she just, she's amazing and she was so much fun to talk to. So you guys are going to be in for a huge treat with today's episode. Please remember that the opinions of my guests might not necessarily reflect my own, though cough, cough, they actually do because I love real food and Lily's all about real food. And also, neither one of us are acting as your medical provider, so do continue to see your doctor, your midwife, or if you're like me, your chiropractor. Lily Nichols, it is such an honor to have you on the Happy Home Birth Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. Oh, absolutely. I consider myself a huge fangirl of yours, to be honest. (laughs) I have recommended your books, both Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, to my listeners, my friends. In fact, I recently had a friend who had gestational diabetes and was able to use your information in your book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, to have a completely different pregnancy experience, far more positive than her previous ones. So thank you so much for the work that you are putting out. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad it's helpful. And for those who haven't had the honor of learning about you and your work, would you mind introducing yourself to my listeners? Sure. Yeah. So I professionally, I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist and also a certified diabetes educator. And I've spent most of my work in the field working specifically in the pregnancy space and gestational diabetes space. Um, So I've done so from the public policy angle with the state of California's diabetes and pregnancy program to clinical practice, especially a lot of work clinically with gestational diabetes Um, quite a bit of involvement on the research and consulting front as well, and training other professionals on these topics. And ultimately, from all of these different angles, especially having like taken a really hard look at the guidelines, and then implementing those guidelines in practice and seeing how they work or don't work. (laughs) um, I've seen that there's a pretty wide gap in what the current guidelines suggest we eat versus what actually provides optimal nutrition for mom and baby. And so a lot of my work is really focused on trying to get more 
up-to-date evidence-based information out there, especially in the hands of moms and healthcare providers, so that people like your friend can better manage their gestational diabetes and do so with more ease and fewer complications and less medical intervention. And people who are having, you know, relatively uncomplicated pregnancies can keep them that way by, you know, nourishing themselves with nutrient-dense foods and all sorts of proactive lifestyle choices that just keep you in that low-risk pregnant group. (laughs) Well, I feel like you definitely know where I'm wanting to go in this interview because you already brought up the current guidelines. And I'm just thinking... There have to be some of my listeners out there who are wondering, wait, what? (laughs) You know, like, what's wrong with what my doctor has said that I should be eating? So for those moms, would you mind beginning to kind of unpack that? What is wrong with the current guidelines and what should we be doing about that? Yeah. So the thing about nutrition guidelines as a whole, because the pregnancy guidelines are just an extrapolation of the guidelines for general, the general population, is that research is constantly evolving in the nutrition field. And there's often a lag time between new evidence getting incorporated into public policies. And just getting it into clinical practice is a lag time of 17 years. So by the time that that gets shifted and then you have like clinicians pushing for change at the policy level, I mean, you're at least two decades behind. And it's unfortunate, but this is just the reality is it takes a lot of time, energy, and effort in order to shift guidelines, even if the evidence that was used to set the guidelines was crap. (laughs) Because a lot of times, it's a giant guesstimate. There's so many examples of this for the general population, but for pregnancy as well, and especially for pregnancy, I would say, because a lot of the numbers, say like the recommended daily allowances, the RDAs, those are set oftentimes based on estimates that adjust up or down from the data that we have on adult men. And it's like, okay, you know, there's an assumption that like, okay, now you're growing a baby and the fetus will accrue this amount of this specific nutrient over the course of pregnancy. And therefore we are going to set the RDA at this level. And that level isn't always right. And it's hard to study pregnancy because it's unethical to withhold an adequate amount of nutrition for a mother and her baby versus providing what we think is the right amount. And then it could be potentially risky to, to supply more than that amount. Right. So it's hard to do research on pregnant women. Um, But from the data that we do have, we're finding that there are a number of things in the guidelines that probably need to be updated. So There's many examples on the micronutrient standpoint, like vitamins and minerals. So for example, with uh, vitamin B12, they've found that the amount of vitamin B12 needed to just maintain maternal serum levels at an adequate range are triple what the RDA is set at. Or another one for protein. The first ever study to directly estimate protein requirements in pregnancy was done five years ago in 2015. Okay. Before that, it was all guesstimates adjusting up or down from adult men. Okay. 
So this study is very important and they're using a method of um, estimating protein and amino acid requirements that didn't exist at the time that the guidelines were written. It's like a, you know, a new frontier in research. And they found that the protein levels recommended for pregnant women in the first half of pregnancy were an underestimate by about 39%. And then in late pregnancy were underestimated by a whopping 73%. Holy moly. So, that throws all the macronutrient suggestions like out the window, basically, because if you, get, if you get one of the three, the carbs, fat, and protein wrong, then that affects the ratio of the other ones that are suggested, right? So there's, there's another example. I mean, we can go on and on with examples here, um, but the, the thing is, is they're just they're just outdated and <laughs> they just need to be updated. And if we're really going to do our best to help moms have, you know, a healthy pregnancy, prepare for, you know, hopefully a smooth labor and delivery and, you know, supply optimal nutrition for baby's brain development, we need better data. <laughs> you know, it's like we can't keep relying on this old outdated information. Gosh, when I hear about this and how these guidelines are so outdated, all I can think about is how, you know, it's the exact same with birth. Think about in the hospitals, so many of the guidelines and the the ways that they are practicing, it's years and years and years behind. And there's all of this new evidence right. that this is not the best way to be practicing, but still they're 20 years behind. Exactly. So clearly this is a problem all across all across pregnancy, at least, all across the uh, medical field as it pertains to the pregnant woman, both nutritionally and birth-wise. For sure. And to bring it back to your your anal- analogy just a minute ago, it's like birth. Everything in the in the birth research keeps going back to this, just like, get out of the way, let physiological birth happen. And lo and behold, like somehow the system has, you know, is there and works, right? Somehow the perineum stretches and the baby comes out. Somehow the placenta detaches when it's supposed to. Somehow, if you just leave the cord attached, then baby gets all its cord blood and isn't iron deficient at six months. Like weird, you know, like how in the world does this work? Um, with nutrition, a lot, a lot of it is the same thing. If we just get out of the way and let mother nature do what it's going to do and we grow our food in nutrient-rich soil that hasn't been sprayed with a ton of pesticides and fake fertilizers and all of that stuff, our plants are more nutritious and have less, you know, unwanted things in them like pesticide residue. So when you think about animal foods, you know, if you just get out of the way and let the cattle graze on grass and on pasture instead of forcing them into pens and feeding them corn and soy, which are often genetically modified and sprayed with a bunch of pesticides, like lo and behold, we have better quality, more nutrient dense meat. Um, If we just, you know, eat eggs and eat the whole egg, including the yolk, guess what? We get a lot more nutrition that our bodies need, especially in pregnancy um, to keep us healthy. So a lot of the food stuff is just about getting out of the way and not messing with the food as much. Oh man, my Weston A. Price Foundation heart is loving this discussion already. And you know, that idea of just getting out of the way strikes such a chord in me uh, when it comes to food, when it comes to all of the other issues that arise in pregnancy. Now, 
one thing that I wanted to talk about is how getting out of the way could very possibly prevent complications in pregnancy. So what are some of the pregnancy conditions we can hopefully mitigate by ensuring we're getting the correct amount of nutrients and by ensuring we're just getting out of the way? Right. So there are, so complications, pregnancy complications. So you're looking at um, differences in the rates of gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, anemia, preterm birth. We have a lot of different examples nutrient-wise that show that there can be a, a difference in the rates of those pregnancy complications when specific nutrients are provided in sufficient quantities. So preeclampsia, for example, there's a whole section on this in, in chapter seven of uh, Real Food for Pregnancy. There's a lot of nutrients that play a role in whether or not somebody will develop preeclampsia. Doesn't mean we have a perfect crystal ball and if you do this, you will definitely 100% avoid it. Sometimes despite being very adequately nourished, it still develops. So I wanna throw that out there because I think that's an important point to make. Um, however, we know from, so, some pretty strong research that if you supply adequate amounts of choline um, at levels far above the current recommended intake, you see significantly lower rates of preeclampsia. Same thing for vitamin D, both for preeclampsia, also for preterm birth, also for gestational diabetes. Vitamin D is a really vital one. They've found that um, they did a, a study in one of the Carolinas where they supplied uh, women with 5,000 IUs of vitamin D per day, which is a lot more than the recommended amount. The recommended amount is only 600 IUs. Um, and they found a 60% lower rate of preterm birth. And this held true across all racial groups um, in the people who maintained vitamin D levels above 40. And that's huge. That is like, that's probably like the most important intervention we might have um, nutritionally for preventing preterm birth. Um, but yet if you were to just eat the, you know, the daily value, only your 600 IUs, you're almost going to set yourself up for deficiency in vitamin D. So there's a lot of little things nutritionally that can play a role in, you know, the, the likelihood that you might develop a complication. Oh, that makes so much sense. And also related to vitamin D, I remember learning right before I had my first daughter that if you are taking enough vitamin D, it can actually lessen the labor pain sensations. Oh, interesting. Yeah, maybe I wasn't taking enough because I definitely can't say that I didn't feel discomfort sensations in my first birth. <laughs> or that's maybe just first first time birth. <laughs> you have different expectations. That's that's probably fair. Now, I did want to jump back to you mentioned uh, preeclampsia. And one of the things that I was reading recently in holistic midwifery was talking about how high protein, like a lot of protein is one of the ways that we can really try to prevent preeclampsia. For sure. So what do you know about that? How does that factor into everything? Are we well, getting enough protein? Yeah. Protein, protein itself, huge um, for preeclampsia, but specifically glycine-rich sources of protein, which are mainly your collagen-rich foods, which come from the bone, skin, connective tissue of animal foods. Um, those help your circulatory system adapt to the changes that they go through in pregnancy, which are huge. Um, but they also, uh, glycine has also been shown to help lower blood pressure, just 
generally speaking. Um, so it's a, a really good idea to have, you know, your glycine rich protein options available, especially if there's any, any history or predisposition for, for something like high blood pressure or, or um, preeclampsia. So protein, vitamin D, things like that clearly are very beneficial for us to include for our, our pregnancies. Now, I do want to kind of flip and ask, what about for our growing babies? How does nutrition play a role in the development of our babies? Does it, does it really make a difference? It does. Absolutely. And a lot of the research, so there's, there's many different lines of research on like optimizing baby's brain development. You have some of the sort of like fundamental things to help your baby just avoid like structural defects, like birth defects, like spina bifida or any sort of neural tube defect, or make sure they have, you know, all 10 fingers and all 10 toes and all their organs and stuff. And some of that comes down to just providing adequate amounts of the nutrients involved in a process called methylation. And that includes folate. Everybody's always talking about folate, but that also includes your choline, your vitamin B12, your vitamin B6, your riboflavin, your glycine, all of these things happen to be involved in methylation. So some of this stuff starts very, very early in pregnancy and is important to have in mind. And then we have some of the differences in brain development. So like, okay, you have a, you know, healthy looking human, right? They have all, all the parts where they're supposed to be. Um, but how does that child function cognitively? How, quick is their reaction time? How is their visual acuity? Is there any predisposition for behavioral issues or something? And a lot of that comes down to nutrients that are really important for brain development. And that includes iodine, iron, zinc, DHA, a really important omega-3 fat, choline, in mothers who are supplied with twice the amount of choline compared to the current recommended level their infants and toddlers perform better at all time points on reaction time tests. So choline becomes a really important one. I'm probably missing some. Did I say vitamin B12? There's a lot of things that are really vital for, um, for brain development. Um, and let's see, was there any other one that I wanted to mention? I think those are, those are like the, the top ones. Oh, yes, iodine. I am so glad you mentioned that. I was actually thinking about how before I was pregnant with my first daughter, I had read about, I, and correct me if this is somewhat wonky or wrong, but a deficiency in iodine in the mother during pregnancy can really lead to a, a decently lower IQ score for the baby, I think like 15 points lower than it could be had the mother been supplemented with iodine. Do you have any information on that? Yeah, for sure. They actually say that iodine is the leading cause of preventable intellectual disability worldwide. Wow. It's huge. So it's funny that everybody focuses on DHA so much in brain development. I mean, it is important. We have a huge body of research on that as well, but iodine is arguably equally, if not more important, um, for, for proper brain development. And, you know, because people have gotten so laser focused on fish and the fact that some fish 
can contain mercury. We have a lot of people steering clear of seafood in pregnancy. And unfortunately, that means you're often not getting enough iodine. People think you're getting your iodine from salt. And first of all, a lot of people don't use iodized salt. But even if you do, the iodine and iodized salt is uh, often not a sufficient amount. Um, Moreover, it's often just evaporated from the salt by the time you use it. So it's like, we really can't rely on iodized salt. You're really looking at seafood and seaweed, which most people don't eat much of in the US. And then second to those would be eggs and dairy products. Those are the most actually in the US diet, the most reliable sources of iodine. And so then you have the people going, you know, well, I have, you know, an intolerance to dairy, or I have an autoimmune issue. So I'm not eating eggs, or maybe you're just going plant based. And now you've taken out all these sources of iodine. Hey, if you're not eating seaweed on a regular basis, then you might run into a problem. Um, Especially because at least half of the prenatal vitamins on the market don't have iodine at all. And if they do, they often don't even contain the RDA. They contain a portion of it. So it it is something that people of many nutrients, it's something to have on your radar. And it is sort of another, you know, check in the box for including low mercury seafood options in your diet on the regular. So there you have it, everyone. Eat that seafood. Now, Lily, I would love for us to now kind of shift gears and focus on postpartum. I know that you are in a very similar phase as I am right now. We're both postpartum mothers. I'm about Mm -hmm. nine months Mm -hmm. postpartum as this airs. And I wanted to ask you, as a current postpartum mother, how has real food influenced that experience? Yeah, so um, it's a great topic (laughs) because I did not have postpartum recovery on my radar as much with my first. And I think that's really common among first-time moms. You're all focused on the birth. And then postpartum comes and you're like, dang, I didn't know this was going to be hard. Um, Yeah, it lasts longer than 24 hours and like longer even than like the fourth trimester, right? Postpartum is a long, long recovery process. I know you and I are both in like the six to eight month mark postpartum at the time we're recording here. So we're still, we're still in the throes of it. And um, I, I really didn't start looking too hard into what postpartum recovery nutrition should look like um, or how to support it better until I was already, you know, in the midst of it myself with my first. And I actually started writing real food for pregnancy at about 10 months postpartum. So there's a reason there's like a really long chapter on postpartum in real food for pregnancy because I was in it. And I can tell you, you know, even though with the first time I was still sort of like eat nutrient dense foods and, and, you know, prioritize your self care and don't go back to movement too quickly and take it slow. Like that stuff was still sort of in the back of my mind, but I also just had this idea that well, I'm really healthy and I've taken care of myself so well that I'm going to recover really quickly. I'm different from everyone else. Right? Yeah. There wasn't enough of a reverence that like in every culture, there is an expectation that you are going to slow down and be cared for and mothered by other people. And people are going to do things for you and bring you your food, right? That's the part that was like missing for me the first time was not asking for enough help. Um, and not doing enough um, postpartum prep. 
And part of that was because I just like, I think you're just so involved in planning for birth that you like forget about it. And also my first arrived like right after 39 weeks and I was assuming I was going to go overdue because everybody said that and you're like, oh, first time mom, you're going to go to 41 weeks. So I like missed out on two weeks that I could have done <laughs> preparation. So second time around, I actually started prepping for postpartum about halfway through the pregnancy. And it was really most of the focus of the pregnancy. I think I had, um, you know, I kind of had an idea like, all right, I'll, I'll get the right people in place to, who will honor my birth preferences. And like, I'll just take birth as it comes and just surrender to the process. There was almost no planning for birth the second time around. It was all about planning for postpartum recovery. So I started prepping freezer meals, um, setting aside like recipes for my husband and for other people to cook for me, um, arranging friends to help have a meal train for me, uh, planning who was going to come up and help out since we don't have family in our immediate area. It was like, who am I going to call in to stay with us to help us out? Um, yeah, that was like all my focus. And I can tell you, I mean, I don't know. Part of it is that I had a much easier birth the second time around. Um, so my recovery was not, not too hard, like as hard as it could be, I guess. Um, but I also had done so much of this work that it was like, you know, a lot of your needs postpartum are very, like visceral, like I need food (laughs) and I need somebody to like heat up that food and bring it to me. Like that, that part was planned for. So that wasn't a stressor. And as a new mom, it's so easy to get depleted and run down just when you get hungry, which you do because you're breastfeeding and that takes a lot of energy. Right. So it was amazing how much that just helped. Like there just, it just felt like there was a bit of a cushion um, this second time around where things were less, dire you know it's like you never know when you're gonna get like trapped on the couch nursing a baby and then you can't get up and go get food like no that part was taken care of because I had help and I had meals prepped and if there weren't meals prepped people knew what I wanted and could make it or go pick it up or it was just much more supported overall so like not just nutritionally but also like mental health wise having helping hands there at like the ground level um, was that in itself is very like nourishing and reassuring. Oh man, I'm finding this so relatable. And I assume there are a lot of other people out there who are in the same boat where, you know, with that first child, we're thinking so much about the birth, especially, mm-hmm. you know, the home birth mom community. A lot of research goes into that birth preparation. Exactly. And sometimes the postpartum aspect really gets put on the back burner that first time. And and as you kind of alluded to, you think, well, I'm strong though, and I'm healthy, right. and I'm going to have an unmedicated <laughs> birth. So everything's yep. going to be fine, and I'll go back to normal. And then you overdo it with the first and realize, ooh, actually next time I am going to make sure I've got everybody on board and either my freezer is going to be full of meals beforehand or I'm going to need some people (laughs) making some nutrient-dense foods once baby gets here. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I went... I mean, my family's pretty like real foodie anyways, but I did go out of my way to prep a lot of especially nutrient-dense things that I know the family members who are coming up to help me don't necessarily 
make or like aren't comfortable making, you know? So I had my like liver pate pre-made and like my hidden liver, like casseroles and stuff pre-made. Um, my husband's good on the meatloaf and we'll put the pate in there. So like that was handled, um, like egg dishes people had handled a bone broth. I did a lot of prep for like bone broths and soups and things. Um, so it just made it easy. Even if people were making meals that were like not quite as nutrient dense as I would want. Um, it was easy to also have some other pre-prepped meals to kind of fill in the gaps with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Liver. I am sure everyone's favorite postpartum meal. (laughs) Certainly one of mine, but actually I would love for you to expound on liver and organ meats a little bit more. I know that they are so beneficial and I actually know that you have an incredible liver pate recipe. I remember seeing on your Instagram where you freeze it into ice cube trays and, and put it in different recipes, but would you explain the benefits of liver and organ meats, especially in the postpartum period and how you make yours? Why liver? Yeah, I know. So when you start looking at what foods were emphasized for postpartum recovery in traditional cultures, you see organ meats come up quite a bit. And especially liver. I mean, that's one of the major organ meats. Um, It makes a lot of sense because liver is really high in many nutrients. And it's arguably the most or one of the most nutrient-dense foods we have on the planet. It is just off the charts high in iron and zinc and vitamin A and vitamin B12 and riboflavin and selenium and protein and choline and folate. And it's just chock full of so many things that your body needs to replete postpartum and needs to heal properly postpartum and needs for your body to produce nutrient-rich breast milk, because a lot of micronutrient levels in breast milk actually do vary based on what a mom consumes. Um, So liver is just a a great thing to have on board. Um, You do just want to find a way to make it tolerable, because a lot of people... If you, did, if you grew up eating liver, you might actually really enjoy it. And I wish that I had grown up eating liver, because maybe I'd be fine to just eat a big plate of liver and onions, like I know so many people can do. But for me, that's really not super enjoyable. And so I prefer to make pate and I'll do a big batch of pate like a couple times a year. I freeze it in either ice cube trays or up to like four ounce jars. Um, Or I have some like big ice cube trays. They're actually those like square cocktail ice cubes, but (laughs) back at full liver pate, it's all pre-measured out. And then I add in about a three to four ounce portion of that to per one pound of ground meat when I'm making meatballs, meatloaf, chili, shepherd's pie. Um, You name it, anything that's ground meat, I'm going to be trying to sneak some liver in there. Um, also pate is actually pretty good, especially if you make it fresh. Um, I don't love it when it's like sat around for a couple days, but when I make it fresh, um, I'll, I'll definitely have, have a fair amount, um, at a sitting there, but, um, yeah, it's a really easy way to, to fit in more, more nutrition in your diet. And I tell you, you know, even if you have a really uncomplicated birth, there's still blood loss and there's still blood loss postpartum from the lochia, the postpartum bleeding that you have. And you need to be rebuilding your blood. I mean, a lot of people up to 30% of, of new moms 
in the U.S. are anemic postpartum. And no one, like nobody's talking about it. Nobody's checking your iron levels, but you're just kind of run down and everybody just chalks it up to just being a new postpartum mom. But having low iron and B12 and vitamin A levels, those things all contribute to anemia and you not feeling super great. They can have an impact on your thyroid function, which can spiral into a whole nother issue. It's just really, really helpful to have your nutrition on point so that you, you mitigate some of those issues, maybe avoid them altogether. Yes. It, you know, I feel like in our society so often, it's just kind of assumed, oh yeah, you know, you're going to have postpartum depression or anxiety or mood disorders, but nutrition is really not emphasized in the mainstream and the benefits of making sure that we have the proper nutrients postpartum. I feel like that's really missed a lot. For sure. Yeah. And there are studies showing that micronutrient deficiencies do play a role in mental health. And so pretty much all the nutrients I mentioned that are in liver, um, plus on top of that, we can't forget vitamin D and DHA. Um, These nutrients all play a role in our mental health and our well-being, as well as just like the basics, like blood sugar balance or sleep, you know, sleep is a a challenge with babies. It continues to be a challenge for a long time because they just developmentally are not ready to sleep through the night or at least do so consistently for a long, long, long time. Um, If we truly look at what's biologically normal for infants and that in itself takes a big toll on mom. Um, So there's, there's a lot to consider, but nutrition is definitely Um, one of the components. So if you take a new mom who hasn't prepared for postpartum, doesn't have support around, is just sort of like flying by the seat of her pants, just trying to like keep enough calories in her, but it's not high quality food, you're probably going to be eating like a greater amount of refined carbohydrates than you might need. You're probably not going to be eating enough protein for a while. Your protein foods are going to be some of your main sources of a lot of these micronutrients. Your blood sugar is going to be all over the map because you're just eating the whatever's close by, the crackers, the chips, the batch of muffins that somebody brought over for you. Um, Because people always love to bring things like sweets to new moms, but like you really need a meal, you know, like bring a meal, bring like a, bring like a frittata or bring a meatloaf or bring a stew. Don't just bring cookies. Like you can bring the cookies on the side. I'm not going to complain about that, but like also bring food. Um, You really need that, that really like dense sustenance early on. I, I, it's hard to explain, but until you're postpartum, like, I don't, it's hard to explain how, how like grounding it feels to have just like a burger or like meatloaf or like a stew. Like you really need that solid iron rich protein, um, early on to, to heal well and feel grounded and keep your blood sugar stable. Right. And that is where I feel like we could, you know, plug the fact that 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 preparation for postpartum before you actually hit postpartum is so huge, or at least having a community to draw upon to to make those foods for you. Because oh, yeah. once you're postpartum, man, your days are tied yeah. and you are exhausted. But if you have the food already there and already available, you know, it's yeah. a simple choice. 
make the nutritious stuff the easy choice. Yeah. If it's there, you'll eat it. Right. And like, by all means, if you don't have the nutrient rich foods prepared and you are reaching for, you know, a whole bunch of bars or something just to like not starve, like that is better than not eating. (laughs) Like for sure. Like you got to eat, like you need so much energy um, postpartum, but we can't forget that your micronutrient needs are higher actually postpartum, at least for breastfeeding mothers, um, than they are during pregnancy. And a lot of people forget that. It's sort of like, well, my job is done. I've grown the baby and I can, you know, eat whatever I want. And sure, you can eat whatever you want, but your body really wants you to be eating more nutrients right now, not less. Yes. I'm always so taken aback when, you know, you go from pregnancy thinking there's no way I could eat more than this to that initial postpartum phase. And it's like, holy cow, I'm eating so much more now than I ever thought about eating during pregnancy. Oh man. I eat so much more postpartum because in pregnancy, like your, your stomach is all smooshed up into your lungs and like you can't, sometimes at the end, it's hard to eat enough. And then postpartum, it's like, I'm a bottomless pit. <laughs> Just like feed the hunger. Yeah. My gosh, that's all I can think about for the first six weeks, I feel right? like. And then when they, and then when baby goes through like growth spurts, you know, I know mine has been going through growth spurts lately. So I felt like my hunger levels had kind of, kind of leveled off. And then she's moving so much that she's just a bottomless pit too. So then I'm a bottomless pit again. So it goes through cycles too when you're nursing. Yeah. Part of me definitely wonders what it'll be like to eat a normal human size portion again, once I'm done nursing. (laughs) But I actually, Lily, would love to ask you, because I know that you are a home birth mother as well. I'd love to hear, do you feel like your guidelines in Real Food for Pregnancy helped your birthing experience? What what was your home birth experience like? Well, I do feel like it helped. Um, First of all, because I didn't risk out of care, (laughs) which I think is like a major concern for home birthing mamas. Um, Once you start piling on pregnancy complications, sometimes legally your um, midwives can't can't see you anymore, which sucks. (laughs) It's just that that sucks. Um, So I was um, fortunate to stay low risk for both of my pregnancies. Um, I do feel like especially the second time around. I don't know, maybe it's just a mental thing, but I just felt more, more like calm and collected and prepared for birth and also prepared for like that I need to really replenish postpartum. (laughs) I went, I went into, thankfully went into both births with, you know, good iron levels, no anemia, um, and didn't experience postpartum hemorrhage or anything like that. And so that was huge, not having excessive bleeding. Um, there's also the fact that if you do have any perineal tearing, which I did have with my first, but then I didn't have with my second, um, you need a lot of collagen and stuff to heal those tissues. And so I don't know how much that played in. I know like a lot of people, no matter what you do, like many people just have a tear with their first. So I don't know if that was avoidable or not. Um, But we do know that having, you know, adequate amounts of collagen allows your tissues to be more elastic and like 
perineum is <laughs> has to be super elastic to let a baby come out, right? Um, so I don't know. I was I was more on my game with um, bone broth and collagen rich foods the second time around. So I don't know if that played a role or, or if that was just like I'm second time mom and I've done this before and I know how to you know, sort of surrender to the birth process and let everything happen because both my babies were about the same size. So that, that wasn't like a size issue or, or, uh, they were both in a good position too. So it wasn't a positional issue. Um, yeah, but I do feel like it set me up to at least like be low risk enough to have a home birth, have it be safe, not have excessive bleeding and, you know, all things considered, I think I had, um, you know, smoother postpartum recoveries than, than some of the, the horror stories that I've heard. So, yeah. Okay. So on the note of that all important postpartum recovery, I would love to hear what are your favorite food recommendations for the postpartum period? And of course, I'm sure it'll apply to pregnancy as well. Yeah. One of my favorite ones actually is just eggs, plain old eggs. Um, doesn't have to be fancy, but eggs are fantastic. So they're, you know, going to be a great source of protein. They're relatively neutral-ish. Maybe somebody who's nauseous in the first trimester would disagree right now, but um, they're they're a more neutral, well-tolerated protein than many of the others out there. They work whether you eat meat or you're vegetarian. They're super high in choline. It's the number one food source of choline by far. Um, the next best one is liver, but for the quantity people would have to consume, I think most people get the majority of their choline from eggs. It can be a source of DHA if the hens are fed flax seeds or are foraging on bugs and whatnot. So it can be a great you know, adjunct to the fish and seafood that you have in your diet. They're just excellent. I'm a big fan of eggs. So if you like them, eat more of them. If you don't like them, and assuming you don't have an allergy or something, try to hide them in dishes so you get extra eggs in there. They really are, are a wonderful superfood. Um, we already talked about seafood, so I'll skip over that. We talked about collagen-rich foods. Um, I mean, we can't forget vegetables. I know I end up talking a lot about animal foods because I feel like in our current climate where everybody is is preaching about plant-based diets, we have to also highlight the importance of animal-based foods as well. So I do talk quite a bit about them. Um, however, our vegetables are still vital sources of nutrition as well. Um, when you talk about preventing postpartum hemorrhage, for example, vitamin K1, which you find in plant foods, is vital to blood clotting. You have a lot of minerals and electrolytes in your vegetables, especially your dark leafy greens have a lot of magnesium. Your dark leafy greens and asparagus and broccoli are really rich in folate, um, which is so important. There's a lot of different phytonutrients that are in there. So find a way to make vegetables taste good. So you eat them, you know, prepare them with both fat and salt. So they're palatable to you. Um, but don't leave them out. <laughs> oh yeah. Adding a heap and helping of fat is the key to making delicious vegetables in my opinion. Oh, it's delicious. My favorite is personally duck fat, which I feel like is very underrated and people do not eat enough of, but holy cow, it tastes so good on top of steamed vegetables of any kind, especially broccoli. Yeah. Yeah. Your animal fats are so 
ridiculously tasty <laughs> people sort of forget it's like if you've cooked with vegetable oils ever they just like they taste bad like they taste rancid they don't make anything taste good but you start cooking with lard and butter and duck fat and stuff and it's like man this is delicious like people come over to my house for dinner and they're like what did you do to make this you know roasted broccoli so good it's like you know it's like lard and salt like <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing fancy on here it's just salt and fat you know um but it does make a difference well lily as we wrap up you know i just want to take these last few minutes to just say thank you one more time for all of the work and involvement that you have had in making such a change for women through your books, Real Food for Pregnancy, and then, of course, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes as well. And as I alluded to at the beginning of this episode, I have seen how these books have impacted people in my own small circle of friends. I mentioned one of my friends, Amber, who has had gestational diabetes with all three of her pregnancies, but this final pregnancy, she turned to your work and read Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and was able to keep everything so much more under control. And, you know, I remember at one point she had to go to a, you know, required class for what she should be eating with gestational diabetes. I remember her texting me through the class saying like, oh my gosh, these guidelines are ridiculous. You know, this is a bunch of crap. Like once you see the research in your books, it just becomes so obvious that, hey, the stuff that we're, we're teaching these pregnant mothers is not helpful at all. So thank you for doing the work that you have done. And now I just hope that all of the moms that are listening will take the time to go find those resources, look into them for themselves, and then also pass that along to anyone who is pregnant. And especially, of course, you know, if there are any complications like gestational diabetes. I mean... Just to follow up on that really quick before we end, I just had a dietitian colleague tag me in something on social media where um, she works at a clinic that actually uses my guidelines instead of the like American Diabetes Association guidelines. And they were getting some pushback. And so she was like, well, let me, let me see like what these guidelines are. And she went back to them and the carb levels they recommend are so astronomically high. It's like comical upwards of 75 grams of carbohydrates at lunch and dinner, which if you think about it, if you've been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, they usually do so with a glucose tolerance test that has at a minimum 50, maybe 75 or hundred grams of glucose. So why are we going to give you a meal with the same amount of glucose, essentially carbohydrates turn into glucose in your body and expect you to have normal blood sugar when you clearly failed the glucose tolerance test. It's like, what? It's just, it's just from a common sense standpoint, doesn't make sense. But um, of course I, I go into more rigorous detail about why those guidelines are so bunk and what you can do differently to better manage your blood sugar levels. But the, the struggle is real, changing the paradigm, you know, and it really takes people who have experienced the difference themselves to speak up and and tell their providers. Um, a lot of times it's just providers sort of like gasping at how how uncomplicated your pregnancy has been. Um, even despite something like a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, sometimes they can't believe that this healthy baby they're looking at was 
born to a mom who quote had gestational diabetes, but um, they need to see that, you know, they need to see what's possible. Well, there you go, friends, straight from the expert's mouth. Want to go ahead and follow Lily over at Lily Nichols RDN. And Lily, thank you once again so much for coming on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Another incredible episode in the books, my friends. What a phenomenal interview with Lily Nichols. She really is such a gem of a person. So that's all I have for you with this episode. Let's end this right now. Thank you guys so much for being just a wonderful audience. I've had several listeners reach out to me saying like, Hey, notice you haven't put out any episodes. I hope you're doing okay. So you guys are precious. I love you all so much. I hope you have a wonderful week and I will see you back here next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Are you looking to extend the home birth support, encouragement, and education? Join us in our Facebook group, Happy Home Birth Podcast Community, and check us out on Instagram at Happy Home Birth Podcast.